Right now, we are going through the book of Romans this summer, if it's your first time here. The book of Romans is a book in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to some Christians in the city of Rome, some actual Christians who are not getting along too well. So contrary to popular opinion, Romans wasn't written as a theological treatise. Romans was written uh, to help people get along, to help people, particularly Christians who came from radically different cultures and religious understandings, to be unified, to bring, in that case, it was the Jews and the Gentiles in uh, the Roman churches under one umbrella. So, so far in Romans, uh, let me give you a little breakdown of Romans so far. We've just finished uh, the first part of Romans, which is chapters 1 through 4, and in chapters 1 through 4, we have basically, Paul has explained that there is one universal problem in the world and that there's one universal solution, okay? And the one universal cosmic problem is the fact of sin, death, and guilt, which affects us all individually and corporately, and that the one cosmic solution to this problem is nothing other than Jesus Christ, his work, his faithfulness, his grace, and ultimately our faith in his work, our faith in his faithfulness, our faith in his grace. So today, we're going to be tackling chapter 5, which is like a transition chapter. It's like the hinge. So it's a lot of summing up Paul's argument in the first four chapters, and it's also leading us into the next three chapters, starting with chapter 6, which deal with, okay, now that we have this cosmic problem dealt with definitively in Christ, how should we live our lives? How do we live out our Christian identity? How do we grow in our salvation? So that's what chapter 6 is going to deal with next week. And as any good teacher would do, um, I'm not necessarily going to cover the whole chapter. It would be impossible in 35 minutes to do that. Um, and I wouldn't give it justice if I did. Uh, so what, it, this, what this sermon is, is the first half is a lot of potpourris about controversial issues and rabbit trails, which are very relevant to the chapter that uh, I'm going to address. And I'm going to address these controversial issues not to pick a fight or to say if you disagree with me, you're not welcome here, uh, but actually I'm just trying to nuance things, which is something that is so important in Christianity in order to say that, because I think there's a lot of bathwater in Christianity, particularly in evangelicalism, that there's a baby, there's a baby in the bathwater for sure, and instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and instead of keeping the baby sitting in the bathwater, I want to separate the core of certain doctrines, the core of the gospel, uh, and sort of get rid of the riffraff, okay? So that's my goal. And then in the second half, we'll, we'll deal with the second half of the chapter, and I'm going to have to summarize it pretty quickly, but ultimately this is going to show how amazing Christ and the gospel is. So let's start reading Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, 
Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So there's only so much I can say about this. Um, again, this is sort of Paul summarizing the first four chapters, summarizing the gospel in terms of uh, the cosmic problem and the cosmic solution. But the first rabbit trail is talking about the Trinity and misunderstandings that people have about the Trinity. Now, why do I believe a wacky doctrine like the Trinity? Well, it's because I see it in the New Testament. Particularly, I see it in the Gospels. I see that Jesus seems to have a real and genuine relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. That there is a real relational interaction. And I don't think this is feigned. So it seems to me at the heart of God, there is relationality, that there is relationship. And it also seems that, God, that Jesus seems to indicate that this isn't just something that happened since creation, that actually from before creation began, Father, Son, and Spirit were in relationship with each other. So, taking that truth, theologians have debated and discussed and written long tomes of literature ultimately to come up with the fact that there is absolutely one God. The Trinity states that there is one God, one God, okay? Yet, in that one God, there is a relationality. There is three persons or three members in that one God, okay? That's the bottom line. Now, this isn't without mystery. This isn't uh, something easy to understand, but I think anything that deals with faith, that there is an element of mystery. There is an element of, like, we're going to have to take this by faith, that if we're dealing with the creator of the universe, I mean, ultimately, like, you know, it's like an ant understanding a human. I mean, there are things that are bigger than our understanding. But because I see the relationality of God in the New Testament, I see that there is a trinity. Now, the misunderstanding in regards to the gospel and the cross comes like this. Here's the story. So there's this abusive father, and this father is just a terror to be around. He probably has an alcohol problem, this father is always smiting people. He's always angry. He needs anger management. He needs therapy. He needs a lot of things, right? And then you have this son. And the son is meek and mild and kindly. And the son, he's sort of a codependent guy. And the son is always bailing out his father, seeking to stop his father from smiting his creation. And you have this... So the son finally says, okay, dad, what if I die for the sins of humanity. Will you stop smiting things? Will you be okay with that? And the father begrudgingly signs on the dotted line, right? So that is an incorrect understanding of the Trinity, okay? That's a heretical understanding of the Trinity. Um, it shows a split personality Trinity, right? It makes the cross not about love. It makes the cross about wrath, okay? Particularly in this passage, it had said, this is how God shows his love for us in that Christ died on the cross, right? And some skeptics have actually called this misunderstanding sort of like cosmic child abuse. Like they see, and this is some, some people even within the church, but a lot of people without, out, with outside the church talk about, oh, well, the cross is just cosmic child, child abuse. You know, it's the father punishing the son. And again, this butchers the Trinity, no pun intended. This is, this is ripping apart God into three gods rather than the one triune God. So, the correct understanding of the Trinity is that God sent himself to die. That the Trinity loved us so much and they had so much abundance 
in their relational eternal love, that their love was overflowing, and through that, they were willing to sever their relationship. They were willing to suffer and die on our behalf for our sake, okay? And the correct understanding of the Trinity, part of that is that Jesus is fully divine, that the Father and the Son, in one sense, are one. And we find like, things like this in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19. All right, so this is 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So it wasn't just that God sent his son to die, which is true, but also in the Trinitarian relationship, God was in Christ because Christ was God. Okay? So the correct understanding of the Trinity is that the Trinity shares things called attributes. Okay? So fast, fancy dancy theologians who are sort of pretentious, they have this word attributes. And attributes is a fancy word for characteristics or character traits or values, okay? So a correct understanding of the Trinity is that each member of the Trinity shares the same values. They, say, they share the same character traits and they do that to the same extent, okay? So a correct understanding is insofar as we see God the Father as loving, the Son is just as loving. And in the same way, insofar as we see God the Father as angry, the Son is just as angry. He shares the same attribute to the same extent. Okay? So that's orthodoxy right there, okay? But most people don't understand it that way. Likewise, sometimes uh, one of the many metaphors of God is God as a judge. And a lot of people attribute that, oh, well, that's God the Father. He's always the judge. Well, actually, no. Like, there are other instances where we see the Son as the judge. In fact, a number of the parables explicitly point to Jesus, Jesus defining himself as the judge. Likewise, in Revelation that we just went through this spring, it defines Jesus as the judge. Okay? So insofar as the Father is a judge, the Son is a judge, and likewise. And just as the members of the Trinity together cooperate and in their relationality create the world, Okay, they also come together and bring us the death and resurrection of Christ and the resurrection. So the work of salvation is a team effort with the Trinity. Okay. Now, this bleeds into another misunderstanding, and this is the understanding of wrath. And this is something that Randy and Ian and some others have touched on. Um, so I'll tag team them and say that uh, we here believe some controversial things about the wrath of God here at our church, and that's not because we deny it. We are not throwing out the wrath of God, but we're throwing away the baby with the bathwater. We're, we're nuancing the common evangelical understanding of wrath in that we understand that wrath is love acting against unlove, okay? Or that if there's a good God, if he is really a good God, then that God is going to be grieved when he sees evil, when he sees his creation destroying itself and destroying one another, the response of a benevolent deity or a benevolent father is to be angry, right? And that is, that is the wrath of God. Um, and further, the question is also, like, how does the Trinity deal with this wrath? Because, again, wrath is an offshoot of the attribute of love, okay? So some people think of uh, 
think of attributes in terms of like, well, there's the love of God and then there's the wrath of God. But actually, in eternity past, before there was a creation, was there wrath? Well, no, there wasn't. God was not wrathful in eternity past because that would mean within the eternal, loving, relational dance of the Trinity, there was anger towards members of the Trinity. So actually, wrath isn't an eternal attribute. Wrath, again, it comes in when God creates his good creation and God loves this creation and God sees this creation broken. God sees evil happening to this creation. God sees his children dying because of evil and sin, right? And that is actually love, the attribute love manifesting itself in wrath, manifesting itself in righteous anger against that evil, okay? And then how does the Trinity deal with that wrath? The Trinity acts in self-sacrificial love. So the Trinity uses its own, his own, their own, and I can use all these, his own love to counteract that wrath. So what we have in the gospel, in the cross, is love trumping wrath. So God's own love defeating God's own wrath by taking the wrath upon himself. Okay. Some of you guys are just being like, what is, especially if you're new to the church, I'm sorry. But I think this stuff is really important. And I think this this helps people get over hurdles that have been put in the way of their love and glorification of God and Christ. Um, so I do think it's really important to nuance these kind of things. So let's go on and start tackling the second half of the chapter, which is not without its own controversies. So let's read uh, Romans 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of one to come. Adam, who is a pattern of one to come. And we'll come back to that in a minute. So, one controversy, uh, and this is, I guess, a stumbling block, is the question of Adam's historicity, okay? Because there's a debate within Christianity in terms of what is, what is the actual genre of the opening chapters of Genesis. Now, I think there are two equally plausible options, and I think everyone deserves a seat in the Christian family. And the two options, and this is a heated debate. You may not know this, but... Um, you know, there, there, on one side, people believe that uh, the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and their fall is literal historical truth, okay? On the other hand, people who are just as devout, just as God-fearing, believe that the story of the garden is truth told through symbol, okay? Symbolic truth. Both say they're equally true, just one is historical truth and one is symbolical. Now, the people who stay that it is historical, Adam and Eve. Um, and I don't think this reading is out of the question. Um, for those of you who might never have thought about this, I mean, it, it makes sense. If there are originally homo sapiens that came into the world, however that happened, there were, there, there were homo sapiens, there was a garden, there were trees, there were animals, and just as God, I believe God does and can speak to us today personally, there's nothing out of the question that would have said that God couldn't have spoken to the 
first Homo sapiens and been in a relationship with them and had those first Homo sapiens by their own free will disobey the commands of God. Okay? So again, it's plausible. On the other hand, some say that the story of Adam and the creation story are symbolic. Most of us know the story of the prodigal son. It's one of the most beloved parables in the New Testament. And the prodigal son story is powerful. The prodigal son story holds authority. The, the prodigal son story holds so much truth for our understanding of God and the gospel. And yet, all of us, I would bet, believe that the prodigal son story is not literal truth, that it's not historical truth, that there really wasn't any prodigal son. Yet, that does not diminish one bit of how much authority, how much power is contained in that story, how much truth is in that story. So, my experience is that uh, both of these opinions about the historicity of Adam have a right to the Christian family. Like, we're all welcome here, that it, it, it's plausible either way, and that it shouldn't be a stumbling block that either you have to believe it one way or you have to believe it another way. Now, another controversy, as long as I'm talking about controversies, is misunderstanding our guilt. And uh, just a disclaimer, um, if any of you have talked to me or listened to me last week, I do believe in sin and guilt, okay? Absolutely. And I believe sin and guilt is the absolute universal problem with the human race and creation. Now, the question, though, from this passage is, how do I relate to Adam's sin? How do we relate to Adam's sin, and do we inherit our guilt from Adam? Um, now, there's a doctrine called original sin, and a better term for original sin really is inherited guilt. The idea that all humanity, every one of us, because we descend from Adam, that we inherit hereditarily Adam's guilt and condemnation, so that each baby that is born is born in damnation and condemnation because we are born in Adam. Okay, now I don't agree with that. Now if you do agree with that, again, you have just as much right to the Christian family as I do, okay? And it's not an issue we divide over. But the thing is that uh, you can still believe in our own individual sin, the severity of sin, the result that sin results in guilt and death uh, without believing that sin was actually inherited and that each child is born guilty. Um, Particularly, the, the idea of original sin, uh, it wasn't really around with the first generations of Christians, nor is it something that you necessarily have to come to believe in from the New Testament. It was actually something that a guy named Augustine uh, developed, who was a theologian uh, in the 400s AD. So it was quite a bit beyond the first few generations of Christians. And Augustine's idea of original sin was carried on through the Middle Ages, ultimately to a guy named Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, before he broke from the Catholic Church, was an Augustinian monk. So he carried forward this idea of original sin into the Reformation and ultimately into modern evangelicalism. So, again, there is some merit for the idea of original sin, but I would say the case is much stronger from the biblical, biblical account that we do not inherit condemnation from Adam hereditarily. Okay, and just two passages I'll point out. One is from the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. This is from chapter 18, verse 20. 
The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share in the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share in the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. Okay, so the child will not share in the guilt of the parent. Okay, so the children of Adam, the family of Adam, don't share in his guilt. I mean, ultimately, it's a moot, ultimately, it's a somewhat moot point, because I think everyone... We, in, we have a much, enough guilt of our own that we don't have to inherit it. So, beyond that, another point is the idea of solidarity. And this isn't necessarily a misunderstanding or a controversy, but the idea of solidarity, to understand what Paul is going to say in the second half of Romans chapter 5, you need some idea of solidarity. And this is something that all the ancients had. And this is something that actually a lot of cultures still have in the world. It's, it's the dominant worldview of most of history up until the Enlightenment was the idea that you affiliated not only with yourself over against the world or yourself over against your family or yourself over against your country, but you, have, you had solidarity with your family or you identified yourself primarily as part of your clan, part of your tribe, part of your people group, okay? And it's very hard for us moderns to culturally get our hands around it. So I don't think it's totally foreign to us. I mean, we do, under, we do implicitly understand it in a lot of ways, even though it doesn't really make sense to us in some ways. So to lighten it up for a minute, um, who's following the Women's World Cup at least a little? Heard some stuff in the news? Okay, so there's these, thing called, these things called women, and they're playing in the World Cup soccer, okay? Um, the, soccer is the biggest sport in the world, okay? And the World Cup is the biggest sports match in the world, okay? And this, is, this year, it's the women who are playing in the tournament, and uh, the different countries come together. Now, we are doing so amazing in the World Cup, okay? I don't care if you don't like soccer. We are blowing away the competition. Four years ago, we, the women, we won the world. We are the, world, we are the reigning world champions, and we came back started out the tournament against Thailand and beat them 13 to 0. That's like a football game being won like 200 to 0. Do you understand that? They are, we are so good. It's amazing. Now, do you understand how I told that story? We. Now, as far as I remember, I'm not a woman. As far as I remember, I'm not in... The, the tournament is being played in France right now. How could I be in France right now and preaching a sermon, okay? I am not winning the World Cup. I am not playing the World Cup. I am not dominating the world. And yet, in a sense, I am. Right? I'm on board with it. So we understand that in a lot of ways. Like, you know, we were attacked on 9-11. But very few of us were actually in New York and were actually attacked. But we were attacked as a country, right? So in some ways, we do believe in solidarity. And in some ways, it's actually easier to understand our solidarity with Christ than it is to understand our solidarity with Adam. But what Paul is doing is presenting a juxtaposition here, where in order to understand our solidarity with Christ better, first, he's building our solidarity with Adam so that by way of contrast, he can make the solidarity and the work of Christ more powerful to us, okay? So that's what he's doing. So that's why the idea of solidarity is important. 
And then we come to the idea of Adam as a pattern or a type. And that's what it says in verse 14. Now, translations, they don't really know what to do with this word pattern or type. It's sort of like archetype, okay, or model or molding. So if you're, you're in a company and you want to produce a product, you produce a molding in which the product would go into. Or think of a jello molding. I mean, for some reason, that makes the most sense to me. Um, and Paul often uses this word as example. Um, but in some way, Paul is saying that both Christ and Adam are both representatives. That Christ and Adam both founded a family which would bear their characteristics. Okay? Both Adam and Christ set a certain mold. One set one mold, one set another mold. And in fact, actually, the word humanity in Hebrew, one of the words humanity in Hebrew is actually Adam. So Adam is the word humanity, right? As representative or as mold maker. But beyond that, the question is, well, what is Paul going to be saying about these representatives? And it's a comparison and contrast. And what we'll see is, again, like, the one side, the in Christ, the mold of, of Christ that we fall into by his work is seen better by our seeing it. So first we're going to look at the humanity in Adam. And I have a little chart here. And so these four terms here, these are all terms that are actually found in Romans 5. We have disobedience, we have trespass, we have condemnation, and we have death reigning over humanity. And in fact, actually, the, the death reigning, it's not just like death happens to humanity, but it's almost like death is being personified as a, a tyrant which is ruling over humanity in this way. So I think it's helpful for us to understand our solidarity in this situation, to understand that we are guilty. And, but for Christ, this is our situation. So Adam is a way to picture, to illustrate our predict predicament, sort of to, to wrap our minds around our individual brokenness and wrap our minds around why is the world broken, okay? That there is something wrong right? So in Adam, so in us. So his failure typifies our failure. His sin and guilt typifies our sin and guilt. Now, the juxtaposition is humanity in Christ, which then Paul paints. And with humanity in Christ, and by the way, elsewhere in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls Christ the last Adam, so again, he builds upon this metaphor, the last Adam. So humanity in Christ is characterized, and all this comes from the passage, the obedience of Christ. So again, it's not necessarily our obedience, but we find our obedience as we enter into Christ's mold in the Spirit. But first and foremost, it's the obedience of Christ that we find that Paul's talking about. And then we have this mold is characterized by grace and gift, and we talked a lot about that last week. We also talked last week about righteousness. And if you weren't here, righteousness is a fancy word, which means being in the right. It's when God declares us acquitted. God declares us vindicated. God says, things are right between you and I because I say they are, right? So it is a standing that we have. Now, in this mold, we have Jesus embodying God's faithfulness over and against Adam's. So in some sense, Jesus becomes the new humanity 
all right? So Jesus is humanity as it should have been, whereas Adam is humanity as it is. So he reenacts us. And Jesus succeeds where we have failed, both individually and as a human family. So Christ steps in as the new prototype for humanity, the new molding in which we can enter into if we see the brokenness of the original molding. Okay, and it's through faith that we enter into that molding, as we learned in the last few weeks. Now, now that I've given that prep, now let's finally read the passage uh, and understand. Now, this is a lot of words, and I, hopefully you can look at this at home more, but uh, this is the argument Paul gives starting in verse 15 of the chapter. But the gift is not like the trespass. For the many died, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that... Just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's a mouthful. And it doesn't help that Paul writes in run-on sentences and that uh, the Hebrew way of thinking is to repeat the same. It, it, it's not like A equals B equals C equals D in this argument. It's basically like he runs over there's A and then there's B. And oh, you could say A and B in another way. And oh, and A and B in another way. So again, he, but he's doing this comparison, contrast, juxtaposition. Okay, but what he's saying, now it's important. A number of times you might have seen the term, uh, and this is in verse 17 and elsewhere about four times in the passage, he says, how much more? Uh, I think we have that on a slide. But the idea is that Paul keeps saying how much more when he makes the comparison and contrast. How much more? Now, what does that mean? And I'm pretty sure what it means is that, first of all, that the contrast is unbalanced, okay? So it's not just like apples to oranges. He's basically saying there's a contrast here between Adam and Christ, but it's unbalanced, right? So there, it, 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 it doesn't exactly fit. So ultimately, he's saying that Christ did much more than counter the fall. And a little nuance here, a lot of people are under the misunderstanding that uh, through the fall, we fell, right? And then through Christ, we're brought back up to square one, okay? So that might have been what you were brought to up to believe or just inherently believe, but that, that is not cr true Orthodox Christianity, okay? What Paul is talking about here is that the true understanding is that, yes, humanity and Adam fell and that we're not just being returned to the garden. We're not just being returned to neutral square one. 
how much more is Christ bringing us above the original humanity, the original Adam, okay, so that it's unbalanced. God is doing far more than just reverse the the curse. He's bringing us into a relationship, a life, an eternity, which is far more deeper and alive than we've ever known it or that Adam ever knew it, right? Bringing us into a position that's far more solid, unbreakable even, okay? So again, we're not being returned to step one, okay? Christ has brought us all the way so that there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in humanity. There's more life in Christ than there is death in Adam, okay? How much more? Now, in conclusion, a realistic assessment of our own brokenness, I think, is really important. And that's why I think it's important to understand the molding of humanity in Adam, okay? Because it's going to help us see Christ's work as more awe-inspiring, okay? So as we understand our failure as a race, as individuals, that Christ is going to shine through. Now, I do believe humans are enigmas, right? Martin Luther famously said, and I love this, that we are simultaneously sinners and saints. That our guilt is deep, right? That our brokenness is really broken, both individually and corporately. But, but the grace of God is more powerful than our brokenness. The grace of God is more than enough for our guilt. The life in Christ is more than enough to counteract the death in Adam. So I'll leave you again with this verse here. Uh, This is from verse 15, the second half. And this sort of sums up Paul's argument. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So the answer to the question, how much more, is that a lot more. That's the answer, right? So the reign of death is not supreme. The dominion of sin in our world is not going to have the last word. The tragic fall of humanity in Adam is not the end. And in Christ, there is a happy ending.